Hello, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement. Some of you may have seen on our social media that we had big news coming, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Uh, so our big news for today is that Life on Side B is going to be partnering with Posture Shift. Um, everyone who listened to our last episode, you got to meet Bill Henson. Um, and everything that's going on at Posture Shift, we are so excited that now Life on Side B in this partnership will become a, a ministry of Posture Shift and the ways that we can work together in this conversation. I'm so excited. So Bill's here with me really quickly. Bill, um, really excited to see you as we go forward in this. Yeah, Josh, um, wow, we've been friends a long time. Uh, you've been on staff at Posture Shift. You are the only person who can teach Posture Shift in Spanish. Um, you helped us translate uh, Guiding Families, both editions into Spanish. So all of that work, um, not only have we been friends and brothers, but we've been partners and it is an honor and privilege to continue to partner with you. What you've done with Life on the Side B has been so awesome. And it really is furthering the, the equipping of the church to advance the gospel among LGBT people of all kinds of backgrounds. And so on behalf of the board and staff of Pasha Shift, um, it's just our honor to continue to work uh, with you personally, but also your team and, of course, life on the side B. So thank you very much, Josh. And it's going to be a lot of fun in the months and years ahead. Absolutely. Uh, I am just as excited. Our co-host team is as well. I think there's so many great things that are kind of come out of this, of us just joining forces in this and working together in order to help LGBTQ people, churches, parents, yes. and do all of this together. So y'all, um, if you haven't already checked it out, go to postureshift.com, go to guidingfamilies.com, go like learn about it. It's great. And we'll be talking about it more to come. And with that, we're going to go ahead and head into today's episode where Sarah and Grant are talking to Matt Ventura, amazing person, about identity and queerness. So with all that, let's head into the episode. Well, welcome to the Life on Side B podcast, where we talk about queer Christian stuff. Uh, my name is Grant Hartley. I'm one of the co-hosts. And I'm Sarah Abbey, another one of the co-hosts, and we're here today with Matthew Ventura. Hi, Matthew. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing, doing very well, thank you. How are you going? Uh, I'm good. I'm a little <laughs> nervous, but such is life. <laughs> How good can people be in such a time as this in the world, you know? Also that. Um, the scale has been shifted, but I say on the whole, maybe like an eight, eight out of 10. So. Okay. Yeah. Strong B. If you, if you could put a number to it, what do you think, Matthew? Look, I have to say, I, I feel like I'm one of those privileged Australians who started taking for people, people for granted already. Um, so we've kind of functionally re-emerged in a kind of a post-COVID world almost, um, here in Queensland. Um, so I mean, we've had face-to-face classes at my seminary since July last year. So <laughs> I, I, like, it's weird that I've also become a lot more introverted since lockdown. 
So I do love people, but I also love not people as well. <laughs> I don't see that as an end of a spectrum. I, I love both. Yeah. Yes. I relate to that. Man, what would that be like to be over, over this? So um, I'd say come visit, but actually please don't. <laughs> yeah, we promise we won't visit. We, when it's safe, maybe we'll, we'll swing on by. Um, we have an icebreaker question for today. Um, what was the, what was the icebreaker question, Sarah? It is, what song or album do you have on repeat right now? What song or album do I have on repeat? Um, oh, look, I have to say I'm a high repeat listener. I tend to fix it in the same thing. Hmm. Um, probably right now, it would have to be a musical I fall in love with called Come From Away. Uh, which probably most of you have heard of, I don't know. Um, in Australia, it's like reasonably well known. I imagine even more so in North America, um, because it deals with some of the events around the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Um, but specifically, uh, this beautiful story of these 38 international flights that were diverted to this little island off the coast of Canada, and the sort of hospitality and community that people were shown during such a crisis as that. And it's just this beautiful heartwarming story, so. I listen to that musical on repeat very, very frequently. Okay. I haven't heard of that one. It sounds interesting. Yeah, it sounds really, really good. Oh, I feel like it's, it's been quite a sensation even in Australia. It toured mm-hmm. here a couple of years ago, and I saw it in Melbourne. I flew to the other side of the country to see it live. Uh, it was fantastic. And now it's coming to my home city of Brisbane in a couple of weeks, so I'm going to go see it again. Oh, I'm excited for you. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? I have recently discovered Joy Oladokun. Um, <gasps> she writes about, like, it's very, like, Christian-adjacent queerness. It's so good. It. I feel like I haven't really done a lot of the deep diving into the lyrics, and I'm just, like, soaking in all of the feelings. But it's not as intense as a similar album, which I appreciate, because that album, I listened to it once, and it wrecked me. And I, yeah. But, so she is gentle but also very deep and fun. And I've really been vibing. Yeah. I think I found her on the, there's like a suggested section on Spotify that suggested a bunch mm. of queer albums to me because naturally, Love that. and yep. I just stumbled into it. It was so, so good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Um, for me, I have been, watching on netflix i'm so late to the game and maybe you have each seen this already but i just started watching sense eight recently have you heard of it i have yeah it's it's really phenomenal um one of my friends recommended it to me that's not true one of my friends said it was incredible uh, and said he could not in good conscience recommend it to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it took a few years to start watching it, but it's a really, really good story. Um, I've really enjoyed it. So that's what I've been listening to, or watching, watching on repeat. Yeah, I feel like you, you broke the rules of the game by taking it from like a song or an album and making a Netflix show, but that's okay. <laughs> maybe i maybe i misheard or maybe i just like breaking the rules either way (laughs) way, yeah Yeah, i'm a rebel (laughs) what can i say 
Um, so we're going to be talking about what's our, what's our topic today? Queerness and identity is our topic. Today. Queerness and identity. Um, and so we're talking with Matt in part, uh, because he wrote this really good article, um, on identity, uh, and specifically when it comes to language. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more, Matthew? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Matt. Uh, I live in Brisbane, Australia, which is why I have this accent. <laughs> if you hadn't picked up on that already. Um, <laughs> I, hmm, what to say about myself? I studied music for many years and then I'm a professional bassoon player. Um, and I'm now at Bible College or I think what, um, in the US you'd call seminary would be the closest equivalent, um, studying to become a ministry worker and really loving that while also doing some music stuff, um, freelancing as well. Um, other interesting things to know about me, I grew up in the country, in the Snowy Mountains, in the cold part of Australia, um, down south, and um, I identify as um, bicultural, so I'm Filipino-Australian. Uh, my dad was born in Philippines, but grew up in Australia, so that's a little, I guess, snapshot of some of the things that make me me. Yeah. Um, what labels do you use to describe yourself? What has your journey been with queerness in general? Tell us a little bit about that process. This is probably... I probably forgot to mention yeah. those things. That would have been pertinent to that topic, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> um, gosh, that's funny. Um, that was not a, a deliberate omission, by the way. I was just like, ah, all the interesting things I could say about myself. I'm not that interesting. Um, <laughs> that's, not, so, that's not true. So my pronouns are my pronouns are he him. Um, I will use a variety of different synonyms to describe my sexual orientation and my experience of that. Um, most of the time, I probably default to using the word gay because that's what most people in my cultural context understand um, to mean someone who's attracted to the same gender. Um, I'll often use the word uh, well, the term same attracted or queer as well. Um, that's probably been a, a bit of a journey of like exploring which adjectives might describe my experience most clearly to people and a journey of both understanding myself and my own experiences of sexuality, but also a journey of working out what people actually hear when I say certain words. Mm. Um, because it's not simple, it's not like you can just Google a definition for a word and you know what that word means to people. Um, you know, even the difference between us both speaking English to each other, but you are in a different English speaking country to me. And the way that you'll use certain words is quite different uh, to us in different cultures. And obviously you have subcultures where you have an evangelical Christian subculture which likes to reappropriate words to mean different things all the time. Um, or even within the music world, um, I found like there's a, a very strong set of, of values and vocabulary that is quite different to the rest of a secular world. Um, and that's always interesting. So even just, just working out um, how to best um, allow people to see me and to know me well um, sometimes involves a certain degree of, of code switching, I guess. Um, and that's not necessarily to uh, to pander to what people want or expect me to say, uh, but just trying to choose the language that's most clearly going to connect with people that I'm with. And that's not just true of sexuality, that's probably true of life in general. Like, as someone who is, who is bicultural, um, I can find that there are times that identify more as Filipino and other times identify more as Australian, um, depending who I'm with and the context um, I'm in. 
And so the way that I might choose to present myself, or the way that I might actually see myself, um, will shift, and that's just, I think, a natural part of being complex and, you know, um, uh, multi-faceted human beings. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, as you were talking, I, I've, we were thinking about how most of the online spaces um, and, like, websites for... Uh, Christian sexual minorities who subscribe to what might be called the traditional sexual ethic, they tend to be skewed pretty American um, for the most part. Um, I think there's a few places in the UK as well. But um, yeah, how has that experience been for you? Have you been, um, I guess, reading most of the resources and noticing all the American context? And how is your context different? What's that been like? That's a great question. And you're right, like they do tend to view specifically US Americans. Um, I think that like as an Australian, that's a pretty typical experience for us to have. Um, most of our media is pretty, pretty heavily influenced by US American culture and media. Um, and so we're, we're actually very accustomed to, I guess, seeing the world through another culture's eyes. Um, and, and being pretty quick to make those cultural translations into our context. So almost all the TV shows that we watch will be produced in another country. We'll have people speaking different accents. They'll be set in different cities or different continents. Um, I remember the first time that I watched a TV show where I could see actual landmarks in my country that I recognized, and it blew my mind. I was like, mm. is this what it feels like to grow up in America or uh, well, the US and, and to see, you know, like these landmarks that are just part of your country? Um, to hear people speaking with the same accent as you. Um, that was quite a surreal experience for me, but I think that just shows that I think in Australia we were used to that real cultural transmission, um, both from the US um, and the UK and other countries. Um, and we get pretty adept, I think, at making those cultural translations into our context. Um, yeah, I mean, even like when I mentioned earlier, like I was a Bible coach, but I translated to say, you know, you might call it seminary. We're just used to always thinking of these, these two versions of a word, and so I think that has probably made the experience of taking Site B specific resources from other contexts much easier for me as an Australian. Um, at the same time, there are significant cultural differences, I think, um, and those are not often reflected in the, in the um, resources that we have access to. So there's a great book by David Bennett, who's an Australian, um, which I really love and I recommend. It's called The War of Loves. Um, and that, that was pretty great to be able to read a story about someone who grew up in the city that I was born in. Uh, just having described in this book places that I had been and lived. Um, but even then, that's, that's one person's, you know, um, story. It's not the same thing as having, you know, data and research, um, and, and resources to deal with the statistics of what it's like to be queer in Australia. I think that's something I really, really feel lack of is statistics that are relevant mm. and um, accurate for my country because it's not good practice, I think, to take research done in an entirely different country and then extrapolate that data uh, to say that's true of our country. Yeah. But it means we just don't really have um, a lot of that information here. So let's do a lot of, a lot of guesswork. Um, and I think a lot of the cultural differences are quite subtle, so it does take a bit of work to unpack what is different. Um, so, for example, I think one one thing that I've realised is that um, in Australia, um, the term "safe" is attracted doesn't necessarily carry the same 
kind of cultural baggage that it does in the US, I think. So I think in the US, um, at least for people who are um, gay or same-sex attracted, they would hear a term like same-sex attracted um, and associate that often with the ex-gay movement um, and sort of the conversion therapy approach. Um, that there's often a strong association there, which means that people, you know, would be reminded of the trauma they've experienced from ex-gay movements and would choose to distance themselves from that by not describing it as same-sex attracted. Whereas in Australia, we don't really have that association very much. Mm. So there's probably a handful of people that I know in Australia and New Zealand who do associate with an ex-gay movement. Um, but even then, the majority of those people associate that way because their US friends have that association. And through our international conversations, they've taken on that association. But it's, yeah, it doesn't have the same sort of cultural baggage. Um, which is not to say it's without baggage, but it's, it's a bit different. And so, if you're a gay Christian living in Australia who's connected to, you know, um, slightly people across the world who's reading these resources, you might be aware of that connection and you might choose not to describe as surface attractive for that reason. But the problem is that very few of the straight Christians in your life will be aware of that baggage and, and they might see it completely differently because it's not a self-evident association in our culture. Um, but that's quite a, a subjective and kind of amorphous cultural difference it's hard to pin down, it's hard to have hard data on this stuff um, that will can inform the sort of conversations we have and um, the ways that we um, describe ourselves in these situations. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, one of the things to get a little bit more into the article that you wrote, one of the things that I appreciated about the article mm -hmm. is that you started it by talking about how unimportant you find the discussion of gay versus SSA and like the language that is used, not that you were saying that the language was important, but that this debate is one that we spend a lot of time talking about and doesn't actually impact, or it's not the most um, impactful conversation that we could be having as sexual minorities. Um, but it made me wonder, what made you decide to write the article? Yeah, so yeah, you're totally right. I think, um, I wouldn't say it has no value, this conversation. But I would say it very much reflects a straight person's agenda. And mm. I'm not saying the straight agenda has no place, but we do need to be aware this is much more of a, a hetero problem than it is um, for queer people. Or it's a problem for queer people in as much as heteros make it a problem. Um, and so we need to be aware that like, it is worth having a conversation, but sometimes we do it at the expense of taking up space and resources where we could be talking about stuff that actually affects queer people. Uh, the reason I actually decided to write it was actually, so this, this was a post that I wrote before I started my blog, um, before I even had in, anticipated doing that. Um, I actually just wrote it as a journal to process some feelings that I had, um, because I had been to a conference where there were a few different elective seminars on offer, and it was a conference for um, same-sex attracted Christians um, to promote, I guess, flourishing in a uh, life of obedience to Jesus in the traditional sexual ethics. But I was just really struck by the fact that all of the elective seminars on offer um, seemed to reflect what a straight Christian might have thought was important rather than the real pastoral needs of, of queer people. Yeah. Um, and so the seminar that I went to was the most relevant to me, and it was you know, literally called The Gay versus NSA. Uh, it was just the, the classic debate. And I found that really quite hard, quite frustrating. Um, and completely aside from the contents of what was said and how it was said, I just found the fact that that was the big issue. Like, I just, I felt very much like I wasn't seen. 
I felt mm. much more people were speaking about me rather than to me. I'm not even just speaking about me, but I was speaking about how I'm allowed to speak about myself. Um, and I don't know, like, I think maybe a couple of years ago I would have found it um, a bit more helpful, but like, you, you probably both know how many times we've had these conversations with people. Uh, so I just found it very frustrating. I just found the, the, um, the false binary that was set up was like, which one do we choose? Is it gay or is it FSA? Because it's only going to be one. And I'm just like, that's just not how adjectives work in our language. <laughs> like, we have synonyms for a reason because it's wonderful thing to have lots of different words that have slightly different nuances and to be able to choose the adjective that most clearly um, embodies the thing that we are trying to describe in that moment. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just, we don't do that with, like, I can't think of any other examples where we force ourselves to choose one adjective from a set of synonyms. Um, and so that just, that I think I just wanted to just journal and process some of those, those tensions. Um, and actually just look beyond that, like, do I prefer gay or FSA, but actually just look, um, not just at how to play the game, but like, what are the rules of the game? And how can we change the game entirely? So it's a, a different conversation. And that was kind of where, where that um, article came from. Um, it was born out of a sense of really trying to change the terms of conversation in a way that I think will actually move um, all of us forward. I don't think it's it's just you know me saying that is not an important thing, but actually saying, what is this really about? Is it really about identity? Because I really yeah. don't think it is. I, I don't know anyone who self-describes as um, a gay Christian who would say that their identity is not in Christ. Um, so I, I really don't think that's it. I think maybe the words can distract people from hearing well, um, and maybe there's nuance to add to some of those words. But I really think it needs to be reframed as not an identity conversation. And so I started saying around the idea of um, this, uh, what I call, call a um, distance versus, um, sorry, differentiation versus solidarity paradigm. Um, I first, I, I, when I first wrote it, I actually said distance versus solidarity. But I realized it's not even necessarily about distance, it's about differentiating. Um, a lot of people who might use terms like centric attractors are not necessarily distant from gay people, um, but they do want to differentiate themselves from that. And I just want to recognize that there are times that I've done that, and there are times I think that is a good and right and loving thing to do. Um, but there are also times that I, you know, want to be a loving friend and neighbor and really want to express solidarity with other queer people. Um, and I think by framing it as this paradigm, which allows us to use multiple words and to have a clearer sense of mm. what are we what we are saying with those words and and what um, we're seeking to do, where we're actually positioning ourselves. I think that hopefully I would I'd love to see that just move the conversation beyond is your identity in Christ or not? Because I think we can all agree that it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciated that paradigm of of differentiation and solidarity. And I think I especially appreciated how it shifts the conversation from like a debate about, I guess, supposed theological truth, which is not really what the debate is about at all. <laughs> um, and it changes it to be a sort of pragmatic conversation about what, how we're using words and, and when is it best to use them and at what times. Um, but you want to, do you want to explain a little bit more about what you mean by differentiation and solidarity? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, 
I was I was reading my journal recently, which I hardly ever do. That was that was a lot. Right. Um, what a trip! And I I hadn't realised this, but um, I I happened to come across this this story that I'd written um, about a time that I had been to a concert in the city with some friends, and after the concert we uh, went across the road and went out for drinks together. And as we sat down and we were just chatting about life, we realised that there were six of us there who were queer. And there was one straight guy with us, and you know, that's okay. Um, but, you know, there's just, just, you know, and this is not an unusual thing in musician circles. Um, we were just like, we, we just kept finding out of all sharing our various coming out stories. Um, and it was this, this really unique experience, I think, of, um, and many of the people I wasn't really close friends with, many of them were just colleagues who I hadn't really spoken to before that evening. But we felt this very deep sense of solidarity. So we were sharing our experiences of, of coming out or what it was like to be queer teenagers starting to come to awareness of our of sexuality and gender identity. Um, and I, I realized I, I was reading the journal and I, I said that until that night, I'd never actually used the word queer to describe myself. Um, but when I was spending time with these people, I just felt such a sense of solidarity with them. Um, that it just, it makes sense. And queer really was the only kind of umbrella term that worked for all of us. Um, you know, that encapsulated both the different um, expressions of gender diversity as well as different sexual orientations. Um, so they would uh, describe as queer. And I think that it's, that experience just made me think, it's actually okay and, and even a good and God-honoring thing and a loving thing to be able to sit with a group of people and hear their stories and, and show the empathy and to do that as an us and not as a them, mm. um, that was a, a profound experience for me um, to realise both how, how much that can be healing for me, but also how that can unlock this deeper experience of friendship to be able to come alongside someone and say, yeah, I get it, I, I feel with you. Um, I understand how, you know, that must have felt um, in a way that an outsider might not have been able to do. So I think that that sort of was the beginning of me really um, tapping into this um, solidarity, um, end of the paradigm, of uh, thinking sometimes it is a really loving and, and godly thing to do uh, to stand with a marginalised group of people and, um, you know, sometimes um, at cost to ourselves and to our respective uh to actually, to be in us, um, to, to create a space where other people can come into that space and have a sense of belonging. Um, that, that is a good thing. Um, I think that that's sort of probably where I default to now is more the solidarity and the paradigm. But I think as well, after that, for many years um, after coming out, I defaulted more towards differentiation and the paradigm. And that was partly a reflection of my cultural context and where I was at, and the fact that coming out to people and being afraid of rejection and misunderstanding, it was much easier for me to sit down with people and say, "Hi, I want I want to share with you that." Um, I'm sense attracted because that was a term that they understood. Um, they knew what it meant in my cultural, in my Christian cultural context. Um, and that also communicated, um, I think, um, also particularly able to say, um, say those of them not to say I'm gay, where they might have made assumptions about what that meant for my sexual ethic and whether I was intending to pursue a relationship with another man. Um, by using a word like sense attracted, um, that differentiated Myself from a a different approach to to being practiced to men, um, and that was helpful because it just spared myself the, the misunderstanding 
of first coming out publications. Um, and it took probably a couple of years for me to feel like people know me well enough and understand uh, my beliefs and my, my sexual ethic enough that I can start experimenting with different words and still be understood and still be seen uh, for, for who I am. Um, so I've seen myself, I guess, shifting a little bit along this paradigm. Um, and even from conversation to conversation, um, I might, in the same conversation over drinks with these friends after that concert, I might talk about it as an us when we're sharing our stories of coming out. But there might be other times of the conversation where, as a as a Christian with a traditional sexual ethic, I experience things very differently than them. And we're actually drawing out the differentiation of actually saying, actually, I don't know what it's like to, you know, to introduce my partner to my family because I've never been there. Um, I don't actually have the right to speak into that as, as one of you. And it would actually be quite arrogant um, and naive of me to assume that I get that. And so there are times where differentiation is actually a loving and humble thing to do as well. Mm. Um, so what I'm finding is it's not so much that you as a person would plot yourself somewhere on this sort of um, axis of, you know, where, where you exist on a you know, spectrum of very differentiated to very much in solidarity. But just realising that we had the fluidity to resonate with people with solidarity in some conversations. And at other times it's really helpful to differentiate ourselves from them. Um, and I find myself in it all the time. And it's, it's this wonderful thing. And, and similar to how I express my experience of um, being bicultural, um, you know, my, my particular context and how the conversation might go will very much shape how I present myself in relation to other people. And it's, I think part of the joy of being relational beings is that we don't just come to a stable, fixed sense of who we are, but we exist in a relation to other people and we respond to those people and and our emotions and our, our portrayals will will be, you know, hopefully if we're engaging well and deeply with people, we'll be responsive to those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. It reminds me of every once in a while when I'm writing about faith and sexuality, <coughs> um, sometimes I have to to look it over and and decide whether I want to say a we or a they, um, just based on what sort of audience I'm trying to reach and and what I'm saying. So that's helpful helpful language, solidarity and differentiation. And I also yeah. really appreciate the reminder. Um, that it doesn't necess- that I don't have to find a fixed place. I think when I first came out to myself and started exploring the faith and sexuality conversation, it was like, well, some people use the language of SSA and this is what they believe. And some people use the language or like use queer identity labels and this is what they believe. But being able to hold that language a little bit more loosely and understand that in these contexts, it might be more helpful to do it in this way. But also as a person who adheres to a traditional sexual ethic, my experience of sexuality is going to be different from someone who holds a different sexual ethic and being honest and vulnerable in that. Uh, yeah, uh, that's something I really appreciate about what you've shared and that framework. Yeah, and there'll be times that I don't use either um, because mm. people often see them as labels. I actually don't see those words as labels. I see them as adjectives or descriptors. Um, but because some people do see them as labels and if I use the word gay or the term sense attractive, they experience that as me labeling myself and putting myself in a particular camp. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I will just avoid that altogether. Like I was, um, I mentioned this in the article I wrote, um, was asked to record a short talk for a youth group, um, in a country town, 
um, in a place that I've never been to and didn't have a chance to have follow-up conversations with the kids in that youth group. And I thought, whichever term I choose, it's just going to be so fraught with different cultural baggage. It's just not worth going there. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I made the most of the English language and be able to describe it other ways. Um, it's described myself as someone who's attracted to other men without having to pick what could be seen as a label. Um, and I think there's, there's great freedom in that. And it also recognises that, that we, as, as human beings, like our stories are still being written. And the person that I was seven years ago when I came out um, to my close friends and to my family is not the same as the person that I am now. Um, and that's a good thing because we're human beings who grow and develop and hopefully are growing our faith and our understanding of these things. And the words that we used to describe our experiences shouldn't remain the same for our lifetimes. Um, and that's actually a really good and healthy thing. And so there needs to be freedom uh, for us to not just whack on a label and position ourselves in a certain place um, for or against things, but actually just to, to see our stories that still be written and use the words that will best describe those stories to people around us. Yeah. 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 I also appreciate how how relational that approach is. Absolutely. So it's not it's not just about um, using the word that. I feel at any given time best describes me personally. Um, and it's all about my own feelings. Um, but it's really recognizing that we're all existing in relationship with other people. Uh, and we're using the words we use to try and be understood by people. Uh, so it makes sense that we'll use a kaleidoscope of words to describe the situation based on the circumstance. Um, it's just kind of yeah. kind of freeing. <laughs> I feel like it yeah. releases us no, from a lot of tense conversations we've had in the past. <laughs> yeah, I think that like just just for what it's worth, to, like to make sure I'm not painting myself as a more humble person than I really am. Uh, it's it's not always uh, about accommodating uh, and contextualizing to make myself most clearly understood by the people I'm speaking to. Often it is that. Um, and often there isn't a combination or a, a cultural translation for the other person's face. But sometimes it's the other way around. So there are instances in which I will use a word like same-sex attracted so people can understand me better. But there are other times where I might use a word like gay so they can understand the word better. Mm. Um, because some of my friends, they know me. They know that, you know, I'm uh, a Christian who's committed to following a traditional sexual ethic, who's committed to not being in a relationship with a man. They've, they've known that. They've journeyed me for years in that. If I start using the word gay to describe myself, that helps them reframe their understanding of the word gay. Um, yeah. And that is a profoundly helpful thing sometimes, and a very uncomfortable thing sometimes. I do sometimes quite deliberately use word choices to make people feel uncomfortable and to, to confront their assumptions of what those words mean. And that's not just because I like making people feel uncomfortable. You know, that's fun too. <laughs> uh, but it's also that I think, you know, I, I read someone say the other day that no one ever left their faith um, because someone um, described themselves as gay, because a Christian described themselves as gay. No one's leaving their faith over things like that. But people are leaving their faith over thinking that they could never be loved by God as a gay person. Mm. Um, I've seen this happen to so many people that I love, and you know, seeing even 12-year-old kids who, the day they realized that they were gay, they decided they couldn't be a Christian because God could never love them. And if using a word like gay means that a 12-year-old kid can hear that and think, oh, 
you can be gay and Christian. That's really new. That's that's interesting. Like if that's the sort of thing that can massively change someone's life and their faith and their relationship with Jesus um, by reframing this understanding of these words. Um, and and so I think sometimes, yeah, I do use words for people to understand me, but other times I use me to help people understand words. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have there been times where the language that you use has kind of fired back on you, you used one word and wish that you had expressed a different sentiment with the language that you were using? Um, I can't actually think of examples of that happened because I think the nature of communication is that we don't get hung up on one word. We hear whole sentences and stories and conversations. Um, and maybe there are like sentences I've said where I could have used a different word choice, but they're never sentences in isolation. There's, you know, most communication is relational. Um, and if it's an important conversation, it's happening in the context of two people who are hopefully, you know, committed to understanding each other. And, you know, we've got a lifetime to, to keep on listening to each other and understanding. So, um, I'm, I'm quite confident that someone who is genuinely committed to being friends with me, um, will hear what I mean and will understand me. Um, it's not to say that misunderstandings will never happen, but that when you love someone, like you, you stay engaged and you keep yeah. listening and you listen to how they use words, not just how you would use the same words. Absolutely. Um, so I think it's quite freeing to think if you are genuinely loving and committed to each other, the specific word you use in one sentence it's not a deal breaker. Like it's everything else. It's the whole conversation, the whole sharing of our stories. Right. I think um, paints a much more three dimensional picture of who we are. Yeah, that's such an encouragement as podcast hosts. <laughs> when <laughs> you know we don't always pick the right words, but people are getting a whole story from you. This is just really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's, there's that phenomenon of. Um, so often, if you think back to significant conversations or interactions you've had with someone really dear to you, um, or even conversations which have been really hurtful, you often don't remember the words that were said, but you remember how it made you feel. Mm. So I think, again, like having a, a whole seminar on do you use this three-letter word or that three-letter acronym, it's like, maybe let's talk about communication. Let's talk about how we um, posture ourselves uh, you know, in differentiation about, with other queer people or in solidarity with them. Um, yeah. Let's talk about how we can present ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus, while also speaking openly about sexuality. Let's talk about communication by all means, but let's not get high up on this three-letter word because that's just, that's not even the whole sentence, let alone the whole yeah. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another Another question for you, but I think... Sometimes the conversations that I have with people um, who are unfamiliar with terminology um, in this conversation, I feel like they get really worried um, that they're going to say the wrong thing um, or they get overwhelmed with maybe all the, the unspoken rules and all the subtleties of language. It can feel really, I guess, overwhelming. Um, I know you talked about um, being open to nuance and being able to use different words in different situations, but someone might be really overwhelmed if they're going to use the, the wrong, 
the wrong language and not be able to know, like, how would you speak to, to someone who might be overwhelmed with what seem like a lot of really tiny rules about language instead of doing away with quote unquote rules altogether? Yeah, that's a tricky one. And honestly, like, there are lots of unspoken rules and they do, like, make quite a difference and it's very hard to know which rules you meant to be following because they're not the same for everyone. Mm. Um, we don't use the same words the same way. And that's, that's just partly the reality of language, but particularly the reality of um, queer language where words are shifting in their cultural meanings so quickly. Um, I was thinking the other day about how, um, someone who identifies as ex-gay, um, they might describe themselves as not being gay anymore. And by that, they might not necessarily mean that they're not attracted to the same gender, but they might mean that they no longer identify that way. Um, and, and I might use the word gay to mean, to mean that I am attracted to the same gender. And so the way we're using those words differently might mean that that person is not gay by the way they use the word, but they're gay the way that I use the word at the same time, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. One person can be both gay and not gay, depending on what you actually mean by these words. And so for an outsider to try and navigate these conversations, it's not like you can just work out what is the right way to use the word, because it's not a single, you know, definitive definition of these words. So it's, yeah, overwhelming. I'd say that probably, that actually we as crazy people need to practice what we preach and listen well to how our straight friends are using words, um, not just the words they use, but the way they're using those words. Because um, sometimes they might be with the best of intentions, and they might be quite hard or even genuinely triggering for us, if we have trauma associated with these words. And it's a conversation to have, but it's also right for us, I think, uh, to practice humility in, in hearing what's coming behind those words. This happened to me last week, actually. I was um, in a very similar conversation about this um, this stuff with a friend over lunch at college. And I had described myself as gay and come out in that conversation. But then I found that every time he was, you know, talking about my experience, he would talk about me being distracted when I specifically hadn't used that term. And I was curious about why he was code switching. But he was also expressing very much that he wanted to be a good and loving friend. And at the end of that conversation, he specifically asked me, he said, Matt, I really want you to, like, like, call me out for any microaggressions that I might make. And I was like, well, yeah, thanks for asking. Speaking of which, like, I've noticed you keep switching this term, you know, like, what, what's going on there? Like, and I kind of express to him often, it's best to respect the way someone's chosen to describe themselves. But, and I was, I was, you know, fully prepared to kind of judge him for that. But what I found out as I listened more to him was that he said to me, he's only ever used the word gay used as a slur. And so he's very deliberately, since he was in high school, very deliberately decided never to use that word because even if he used it in a good way, it's still a slur in his mind. Um, and similar to how he might have uh, discourse about, you know, for example, and like Sarah and I talked about things like slur reclamation uh, in the black community and how there are words which, even if a black person can say it, it's not right for the rest of us to say it, no matter how much someone else might have reclaimed it, it's just not appropriate. Um, and I think my friend had seen gay as one of those words where he thought it's okay for Matt to use that word to describe himself, but it would be disrespectful for me as a straight person to assume that I can also use that, that word. Oh. And it was actually a really well thought out and really respectful decision he'd made uh, oh. to not use a word he hadn't explicitly been given permission to use. And I actually realized how loving that was. Mm. But if I hadn't listened to well, I would have missed that. And I would have just assumed that he was co-switching because he didn't want to say this dirty word that Christians don't like to say. Um, so that was a real convic- conviction to me that I actually do need to practice the right fiction 
listen to how someone's using a word, not just the specific word choices. Wow, that's really convicting. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, both in listening well, but then also having the like boldness and stability that when someone is using language to ask questions about why they're using it in that way. Because I think if I had been in that moment, I would have been butthurt and gone home and like, wow, this friend of mine, what am I going to do? And how am I going to engage them? Um, but you were able to have so much more of a meaningful conversation because you talked about how you were feeling and y'all were able to kind of bond over that. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from just the fact that he expressed himself, not just through his words, but through his posture towards me in that conversation. The fact that he was asking me, you know, to point at any microaggressions he might be making, that, that shows he's committed to me. He cares. He wants to, to learn and grow. Yeah. Yes. And so it would be really kind of naive of me to assume that he's an unsafe person who's homophobic uh, when everything he's saying and doing is showing the opposite. Um, and I, I think, like, the idea of neuroception has been fascinating me recently where we think about how the, the way you perceive people is primarily through reading their, um, our brains with so much more quickly, we perceive their body language and their tone of voice, um, literally several hundred times more quickly than our rational brain processes the words that we're hearing. And so before we've actually heard a sentence, our brains actually formed an opinion on how we feel about that person and whether we experience them as safe or as a threat. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, like, it freaks us out, I think, as Western thinkers who like to think that we're very rational, to realize that actually our perceptions are not rationally being formed, they're being formed in other ways. But that's actually just part of how our brains are wired, and that's okay. And it's okay to actually rest on our intuition of, is this person a safe person who's committed to my well-being, or are they actually an, a threat to my to my safety? Um, and then to use that um, neuroception, which is like incredibly fine-tuned and accurate. Our brains are amazing, the way God has made us is phenomenal. To actually use that, that intuition uh, to listen, I think, a bit more attentively um, to the words being used. Because let's face it, like we all screw up with our word choices. Uh, there's so much more to communication than words. Yeah. That was so insightful. I'm going to be chewing on it for, I think, the next few days. Um, I think it really forces us to wrestle with, I guess, like our own baggage when it comes to the words we use. I know Absolutely. for me... Um, same-sex attracted has been used in opposition uh, to things I have said so frequently um, that I think I have a sort of secondary, um, like, lizard brain uh, response to to the word. And so it, it really forces me to, to rethink um, how other people might be trying to use words to communicate with me. Um, it struck me that like in that conversation you had with your friend, like I could have very easily walked away and thought, oh, this guy just does not respect the way I speak about myself. So it really requires humility of us, which is always good and always painful. But yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, like communication is always a two-way street, right? Um, mm-hmm. It. It's very easy for me as a queer person who has had so many words and other things recognized against me by Christians. It's very easy for me to call other people to a high standard of communication. But it has, has to be a two-way street. And maybe part of how we teach people how to communicate better is by modeling that. 
Well, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a pleasure. Um, you're so wise. How did you get so yeah. wise? Um, <laughs> it's incredible. I always joke, it's just a trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Too real. Oh, gosh. Very sort of queer humor. But um, no, genuinely, I, I think sometimes, like, the, the resources that weren't written when we were growing up for us to have other people do the thinking for us. So, try to figure it out. Um, yeah, I sometimes wish I wasn't wise because I would love to just pick up a book and be like, "Give me answers. Tell me what it's like to be a queer Christian." Um, that'd be nice. Well, you should probably write that book, right? I mean, I'm sure lots of queer kids would jump at the opportunity to read something that you have written. Actually, I've been reading um, Nate Collins's book. Um, which has been really eye-opening for me because I feel like a lot of the books that I've read um, on, you know, sexuality from a Christian perspective have been quite, like, one-on-one level. Like, they're basically, you know, sexuality for a straight person never thought about it before. And that's good, and it's right that those books exist, but they haven't necessarily done the intellectual or emotional labor for me that I needed to be done for me to, to flourish. Um, but I find this book, it's, it's taken the intellectual... Um, thoughtfulness to a whole new level. Um, like it's not just um, answering questions I haven't been answered to, but asking questions I haven't even thought of about identity and mm-hmm. faith and sexuality. Um, that's been really interesting. I've, I've really enjoyed that and I just wish it was around yeah. years ago. Yeah. Wow. I haven't read that one. It's on my shelf. I have like five or so queer Christian books that I need to read. This is, what a great problem to have, right? You know, used to be there wasn't a book at all, and now there's like 10 or so, and I've, I've got to read half of them, but, um, well. Uh, the struggle is real. I, I feel like, though, like I feel the same thing sometimes. I don't know if you guys get this, but sometimes you can feel a certain pressure to like keep abreast of all the literature being published on this topic. Mm. Like you have to be, you know, an expert rather than just be a person who yeah. exists. Um, yeah. You feel like you have to do this constant lit review of all the books being published, and it's exhausting. Um, so I was saying, Sarah, I hadn't read this book for years, and years I knew about it. I was like, I don't re- need to read another book on being a gay Christian. I'm sick of them. Yeah. Um, which is probably why I mentioned it, because I wish that someone had told me years ago that it actually was a next-level <laughs> approach. But I don't know, do you guys feel the same way about books and just like being overwhelmed by the pressure to have to be an expert? Yes. I also retain very little of what I read. Um, And like what I do retain is very deeply internalized. So if you ask me what I learned from this book, probably couldn't tell you, but a few days later I'll be like, oh, it deeply changed the way that I thought about myself and the world and all of these things. But I think it makes it very overwhelming to read all of the books that are out. And I think too, so many of them are written by men, which is good and beautiful, but also requires a lot more translation and contextualizing with my own experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, it sort of tricks me into thinking that, like, I'm not an expert on my own experience unless I can quote from yeah. from people who've written books. Um, Absolutely. And that's not true. Um, we're yep. all an expert on our own experience. But, um, yep. yeah, I think if you told me years ago that you would have 15 books that you're you want to read on this topic and that you respect all the people 
who've written these books, I would, I would think you're crazy. Um, there's just been an explosion of, of literature. So that's really encouraging. Things are changing, but uh, we don't have to read all of it. I've got other books to read. I want to read some novels, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And I love when you say that, like, we don't need to, like, have the, you know, the sources to be able to be experts of our own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I feel that. Even, like, thinking about, you know, coming to the podcast today and talking about, um, like, you know, the topic was identity more broadly, thinking, well, what smart things have I got to say about identity that will sort of add to the discourse? So I'm like, I don't have to be an expert in this stuff, you know? Like, it's enough to talk about identity as, like, as I experience it in my own life and in the world um, without having to have, like, three different books that I can quote from to say smart things. Um, the horrible thing is, like, and I, like, you hate myself for this while I was being proud of it at the same time. Uh, it's like, I do have, like, a pile of books next to my desk where I could pick it up and I could read you a quote about identity that's been really insightful. Um, and it's great that, you know, some Christians have the capacity to be able to do that, but I'm super conscious that sometimes those of us who like talking about interesting conversations actually make it harder for other queer Christians to exist as normal people. Um, yeah. And that the more thought out we might be, the more intelligent we can have conversations. Um, the higher a standard we allow our community to set for other queer people to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just quite conscious of the respectability game that our churches often play. Yeah. And how, you know, I might be able to articulate a robust theology of a certain thing that I have an opinion on, but it's not right that other queer people should have to be, you know, have a theology degree to be a gay Christian. We often joke about that, don't we, that, you know, you have to have a theology degree to be a gay Christian. Um, and it's funny, because I'm doing a theology degree. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm really conscious of that. It's like, I, I don't want to become an expert gay Christian, because that makes it harder for other people to exist safely. So, yeah. I kind of wanted to say that at some point in this, so anyone listening doesn't think that, you know, they have to have all of this stuff figured out to be able to exist openly as a gay Christian. And it's okay to not have answers, but not to have the questions and to just be. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I think particularly as someone younger than both of you, I feel a lot of that pressure of, I don't know all of the theology. I kind of resent that being queer means that I have to know a lot more theology than I did before. But I think it's been really helpful to be in spaces with people who do who have done the work and have the knowledge and to remember that, oh, like, I know, A, I know more than I think that I do, B, that I am following God. And if Jesus tells me to go to seminary, I'm going to go to seminary and I'm going to do this learning. But also sometimes pursuing my own flourishing looks like reading a queer YA novel and just thinking about what it would have been like to be out in high school and be in a safe environment and allowing that part of myself to settle and sitting in joy and like sitting and rest and doing those kinds of things versus the constant like academic intellectual pursuit that I think is good and beautiful, but not always. I think sometimes it can feel like that is the like aim and the objective and what actively pursuing God in my sexuality looks like. And that is not always the case. Yeah. yeah. That's so good. And remind us that we're not just um, brains in mid cases. Yeah. You know, like yeah. to be human is not just to be a thinker. Um, yeah. And, and actually, I think a lot of that hyper-intellectualism comes from a literally a dehumanizing picture of human personhood that mm. sees our brains as distinct and different from our bodies. Um, it sort of separates yeah. our personhood into these discrete parts. 
which is just not at all a biblical idea. Um, but also, I don't want to come across as sounding anti-intellectual. Like, I think theology is a good and beautiful thing that helps us know the nature of God. Absolutely. But our safety shouldn't depend on how well we can articulate our theology. And that's what's often yes. different about the queer experience of theology, is that it's not that I don't want queer people to be thinking theologically. I think it's a beautiful thing that a lot of us are particularly gifted at. Um, but I would love to see a world where we didn't have to be gifted at that to be able to be Christian um, and safe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think it would also be helpful to sort of level the playing field. You know, I think a lot of um, a lot of people who aren't queer have experiences um, that they don't examine theologically, um, and so I think there's a real disparity, I guess, between um, queer people who have to have theology degrees to speak about their experience at all um and straight people who don't think about certain aspects of their experience where they might really need some theological insight so yeah so. yeah yeah it's funny I, I actually sometimes um in my sort of role as a um, student minister at my church um i sometimes have um married couples um come up to me and ask if they can talk to me about marital issues or sometimes um, even sex stuff. And it's not because I have any experience in a relationship. I've never been in a relationship in my life. And I find that quite hilarious and ironic. But it's because, like it said to me, that you've actually thought deeply about, like, God's picture of a marriage and the theology of sex. Like, to be celibate, to choose that, you've actually had to think deeply about this in ways that a lot of other straight couples might not have done. Um, yeah. And I both appreciate that. Like, I appreciate that God has gifted us in different ways and that we have unique perspectives to offer the church as queer people who, who see these things kind of from the outside uh, without the same blind spots. But at the same time, it, it sucks a bit that um, we're doing all the intellectual labour for everyone mm. where they're not even thinking about the issues that actually affect them, let alone yeah. straight couples thinking about the theology of celibacy. Like, that would be nice if I could just go to America and be like, being single is hard, explain it to me. You know, talk to me about a theology of singleness. Like, wow. that'd be nice. They, they do that to me. And I would love a world where we're actually bearing some burdens, uh, not just practically, but also in our intellectual labor as well. Mm. Yeah. Wow, there's so much to think about there. I feel like we got off on a little bit of a tangent that's sort of unrelated to language, but very good, too. Very important. <laughs> we love it. True. True, true, true. Um. um Oh, did you have something to ask there? I was just going to say before we go, are there any books or music or resources that have been particularly helpful for you that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Look, I think um, maybe like just sort of um, going off this, this tangential, um, not hyper-intellectualizing approach. Um, I, I could talk about Christian books that have been helpful, but I think like we are access to those resources. They're great. Um, been there, done that. Actually, something that has really shaped my experience as a gay Christian has been um, a musical that I know at least Sarah has heard me write about before. Um, it's called Bear, B-A-R-E. Um, well, it's full name is Bear, a pop opera, but it's more a musical than a pop opera. Um, and what I love about this musical is that it it's this really um, a heart-wrenching story 
of two teenage boys um, in a Catholic boarding school grappling with um, coming to grips with the fact that they are in love with each other. Um, and they also hold their faith as a really important part of their lives. Um, they're also just navigating the usual high school stuff of not fitting in and all the complicated stuff that you might experience there. And it's, I mean, I've never come across um, a piece of literature that's not so deeply relatable. Um, mm. I realised when I first saw this musical just how much I'd never really seen people like me on the stage or in a book. Um, and that was deeply healing in a way, and not just because they were gay, but because they were grappling with the intersection of their faith and their sexuality. But particularly, I think what I really appreciate about this work, and it does this in a way that I think intellectual literature can't do, um, story-based art, I think what it does so well is that it leaves room for ambiguity. It doesn't give neat answers. So here's how you can reconcile being gay and Christian. Uh, it didn't say, this is what the church got wrong, or this is the right theology of that. Um, it just tells a story as it's experienced by the characters um, and leaves it hanging with this heart-wrenching ambiguity. And, and I think that sometimes is what we need, is actually to, to, to be able to storify um, our lives and our narratives, to actually to step back and, and understand that. And to, to know it's okay that we haven't you know, got this resolution tied up yet. Um, and to have, and particularly because it's song, um, it's not just words, it's not just story, but to have those things that can express emotions that I couldn't quite express myself. I couldn't sit down with a friend and be like, here's a dot point list of all the things that I'm feeling right now about being a gay Christian. But to be able to send a link to a song to a friend and be like, this, like, this gets it. Um, this song is all about a prayer. There's people asking God, are you there? Do you hear me when I cry? But all the different emotions behind that, that, uh, the cumulative result of that whole story up to that point. Um, I think that has really served me in a way that um, Christian books, um, I've done a different way, but they have been able to do this, so that ambiguity tolerance. Um, the appreciation of beauty in story, even if it's a dark and a complicated, even a painful story, but seeing, seeing beauty in that um, and in the resonating with each other's stories. So that's fair uh, musical, I think. I, I'm shocked that more gay Christians haven't heard of it because um, it is such a vibe, such a mood. Okay. Um, I feel like everyone should listen to it at least once. <laughs> I'll look it up as soon as we're done. I'm going to look it up and put yep, it yep. on my Spotify. It's on my to-do list to listen to. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking with us, Matt. Um, yeah. Before you go, where is the, the article that we've been talking about? I don't think we mentioned where to find that. Um, that is on my blog, so that's singledout.blog, um, singledout.blog. Um, that particular post is called Gay vs. SSA, um, and the subtitle is, and why that's a super title for what I'm writing about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you can scroll back and find that. There's some more recent posts from there as well if you're interested in that. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.